Kevin Schwartz and the team at Payne Schwartz Partners have deployed more than $4.5 billion into food and agriculture, but not into venture capital or farmland like many of the investors you've heard before on the show. Their focus is on private equity. We're looking for opportunities where these companies are beyond the kind of binary, does it work or does it not work risk. Our perspective is that the best relative value opportunities exist in growth equity and buyout, not in venture capital. So they buy or invest in established food and ag companies where they feel they can add value and ultimately sell to a strategic buyer. But I wanted to know where they see investment opportunities that fit these strategies today. So we continue to believe that those critical inputs, the seed or the spawn or, or the animal that's being produced is probably the single most important and, and attractive part of the value chain. And it's the segment in which we've deployed the most capital. Today, we learn a little bit more about the private equity playbook and its impact on the future of agriculture. We don't market PSP as an impact fund, but we do measure impact and it's real and it's more than just financial return. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. The system came to me about a week after we had started doing soybeans. I had about 300 acres already through the machine at this point, our combine. And we got into that field and started going and the system started showing you got loss out the back. The The fan was set maybe just a little bit too too fast. It was We went from non-irrigated beans to irrigated beans, so the yield was a little higher. I changed one millimeter on the, the sieve and slowed the fan down 50 RPMs. That immediately changed about four bushel back into the tank and that small little change it changed everything you know i don't know how long i would have run in that field had i not had that and gone i need to make a change join the ranks of farmers deploying harvest vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind put ai to work on your farm just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Kevin Schwartz of Payne Schwartz Partners. This is a really interesting look at the food and ag industry from a totally different perspective than what we normally have here on the show. Kevin and his team are investors, but they're not trying to invest in early stage startups like venture capitalists would or into farmland like other investors might that you hear from here. Their focus is on companies that have already proven their product, but for one reason or another might be looking to either sell or 
or take on an investor. Now, Payne Schwartz Partners focuses their investing mostly into two different general categories, the first of which is productivity, which includes seed and other inputs and technologies that farmers and ranchers might use to produce more efficiently and more profitably. You'll hear Kevin use the word upstream a lot, and he means upstream in the value chain. So these types of companies and products and services that serve farmers. And their second area of investing is further downstream into more food companies, more closer to the consumer, specifically those associated with health and wellness. I really enjoyed this chance to ask Kevin about the evolution of private equity investing in food and agriculture and their approach from developing an investment thesis to research and due diligence to value creation strategy to portfolio construction. Uh, We also talk about the rise of environmental, social and governance, otherwise known as ESG and impact investing, as well as how interest rates impact these companies and PSPs ability to carry out their strategies. A lot of interesting stuff here that I'm learning for the first time. So I enjoy episodes like this because I always leave energized and with more questions and wanting to learn more. Now, if you're an ag nerd, but maybe not a finance nerd, there might be a few terms in here that are new or foreign to you. Don't let that discourage you. Uh, I'm not going to do a full glossary here, but I do encourage you to pause and look them up if you need. But stay with us to the end, because I really think there's some insights here for everyone in this episode. All right, a quick bio on Kevin before we dive in. Kevin Schwartz has been an investor in the food and agribusiness industry for more than two decades. Today, he leads Payne Schwartz Partners as chief executive officer and managing partner. Raised in the town of Moline on the border of Illinois and Iowa, his great-grandparents were subsistence farmers in Iowa, and his grandfather, uncle, and father all worked at John Deere, the company that put that area on the map. Kevin began his career at Goldman Sachs in the late 1990s and then moved into private equity working for two organizations, Fremont Partners and American Industrial Partners, before coming to the firm, which at that time was called Fox Payne in 2001. And that's where I'll drop you into today's conversation, where Kevin is explaining why at that time he decided to start focusing uh, his interest in private equity on his background in food and agriculture. I'd always had an interest in in the industry, but it, it, it as a huge global industry, heavily privately owned, very fragmented, and not well covered by investment banks creating investment opportunities for typical private equity firms. It was off the radar in two thousand one, two thousand two, when I joined Fox Payne as a vice president. I had the opportunity to dig into really any industry that I thought was interesting. And so I did so in in the ag sector and particularly with a thesis around the upstream products, services, insights that ultimately drive the productivity of our agricultural production systems. And so I focused on seeds, basically the most important input that that a farmer buys. And, And that led to two investments in the seed industry in the early 2000s within a generalist fund context. So there wasn't a specific focus of the fund, but those two investments, one in the vegetable seed industry, uh, we actually acquired the largest vegetable seed company in the world at the time. It's called Seminus. We took it private, we grew it, and then we ultimately sold it. And then another investment, which was quite complicated because there was a lot of strategic interest in it, 
regulatory reasons why strategics couldn't own all of it. And so we unlocked that and created a second investment in the seed industry in broadacre crops globally of a company that was actually based in the Netherlands. And those two investments were really successful, which helped, but there was also no private equity competition for either asset. We were the only private equity firm looking at and ultimately creating those investments. And that catalyzed a much more proactive focus on there's something here. There wasn't a lot of institutional capital and certainly private equity capital focused on business transformation and value creation, scanning the segment. And and we saw it as white space. And so it was really from 2010 on that we have deployed capital only in food and agriculture. And at this point, we've deployed more than four and a half billion dollars of equity capital just in food and agricultural companies. Uh, and we manage more than five and a half billion dollars of, of committed equity capital. So we, we've got a, a significant amount of dry powder and are, are actively deploying as we speak. That's great. Uh, a quick personal note on in 2006, I was a undergrad at UC Davis and I did a summer internship with Seminus and that would have been right around the time Monsanto purchased them, I believe. I don't remember if it was right before or right after when I was an intern there, but uh, yeah, very familiar with Seminus. That's cool. Small world. Um, so that would have been the period in which we owned the company. We, we were the owner prior to the sale to Monsanto. The uh, company was led by a CEO named Bruno Ferrari, uh, who's still a close friend of mine and, and somebody with whom we work today. But I didn't, I didn't realize you'd worked at Seminus. Uh, great, great company. I had a yeah, fantastic time interning there. Really cool company. I got to sample a ton of tomatoes, but I, I, could, I could talk the whole hour about my little internship. But uh, yeah, no, great company and cool personal connection. I am curious. So has that changed as the interest from private equity and institutional capital, you know, has it become more competitive since that time? Yeah, yes and no. I would say that if you look at the entire food and ag value chain from pre-farm to fork, let's say, you've got this huge $13 trillion global industry. And, and there's definitely parts of it that have drawn more interest from private equity or venture capital or just broadly institutional capital. But those tend to be pretty focused and clustered and, and downstream closer to the consumer tends to be where you see the most private equity interest. And it's mostly generalist private equity firms that are looking through a consumer lens and are identifying food as an interesting market. You have institutional capital focused on investing in agricultural land, uh, both for value appreciation and as an inflation hedge. And so that's been an area of, of focus for institutional capital for a long period of time. But that's a completely different return profile than the one we target. It, it's really the upstream part of, of the, the value chain. All of the products and services and insights that are ultimately sold to producers where I think we have our greatest edge and where we have really not seen material private equity competition, certainly in um, newly formed sector focused funds. There have been a couple that have uh, stood up over the last few years, but uh, we remain the largest. We just completed fundraising for our sixth fund at $1.7 billion of committed capital, and that's the single largest fund focused on on agriculture. 
we we do see i would say increasing focus on food and agriculture from impact capital or capital seeking impact in addition to financial return it's been identified as one of two or three most important segments for that type of capital investment and that's starting to move the needle a little bit we're we're seeing some pretty large generalist impact funds laser in on food and agriculture for some of the obvious reasons that that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and I know over the years you all have become more and more vocal at least about your ESG commitments with your investors. Can you maybe talk about that and um how that changes if at all the way that you've approached your business? Yeah, I think we think about ESG and broadly sustainability in two ways. So one strategically what we are investing in is fundamentally a strong sustainability and esg thesis and it's that we want to invest in companies that are developing and deploying technologies products and services or insights that are increasing the productivity of agricultural production systems sustainably and I can give you examples of that. The second is that we want to be producing healthier and better for you food and beverage products for consumers. And the adherence that we have to those two core investment themes in everything we do is critical. So at a strategic level, we are investing in only two investment themes, and those are directly aligned with UN SDGs and ESG goals and objectives. There is a second component operating as a private equity firm and a steward of capital that we, from a process and systems perspective, embed ESG in all of our work processes, really from target identification, well, thesis development, target identification, due diligence, investment committee, underwriting, value creation, and then even exit. But what we're doing is following the demand. So consumers want better, healthier, free from allergen, pesticides, chemicals, or organic food, and they want a lower impact production system that is sustainable for what they eat and drink. And that trickles up the supply chain, and we're investing in, effectively, creating the opportunity to serve that growing demand and and that demand for health wellness transparency safety we think is and has been proven to be resilient through cycle so when you look at some examples of how we then invest capital in specific companies because our strategy is to in any given private equity fund invest in 8 to 12 individual companies we're investing in companies like ABT, which is a company founded in Australia that developed a novel 
pest control solution using the naturally occurring viruses that have been in the particular pests, these are caterpillars, for millennia. Extracting those viruses, refining them, formulating them into a foliarly applied biological crop protection product that controls those pests with zero residue, zero knockdown effect on any other organism, fully safe for the pollinators. Humans can consume it, it's organic grade material. And that pest control solution is as effective as the synthetic chemical solutions that it is replacing. And so we've taken that company, it had established based on where its technology was developed, about a a 90 or 95% market share of that type of biological control in Australia. We invested capital to bring that technology to much bigger and fast-growing markets that really need those solutions for pests like Helica verpa and others. So Brazil being an obvious one. So we we have a a company where we can create significant growth in revenue and profitability and ultimately value for our investors by serving a market need with a product that's high efficacy that can be manufactured and sold very profitably and is much safer and better through the value chain. As another quick example, we we have a, a, a company called Advanced Agrolytics, and that company has developed algorithms that are proprietary based on huge volumes of collected data on farm to in hundreds of plots per acre help farmers make decisions about what to plant, where to plant it, at what density, when to apply, how much to apply from a fertilizer or crop protection perspective, and ultimately through the proprietary algorithms and the advice that farmers are provided now across well over a million acres under contract, we are delivering on average a 10% better yield, and this is in corn, 10% better yield at 20% less nitrogen application. So easy math to run on both productivity increase and lower environmental impact. And we're doing that from an advanced agrolytics perspective profitably. So again, an opportunity to create financial return for our investors. Yeah. And for listeners, we did have Aaron Galt from Advanced Agroanalytics on in episode 244. So you could check that out to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. But uh, let's go back to the ABT example. And maybe this is a good way to frame up some of the differences in approach between venture capital and private equity. You know, a lot of other stories we share on the show, you'd get a company like ABT that says, we want to expand to Brazil. So, you know, we've raised this series of venture capital to help us grow. But the private equity playbook is quite a bit different. So maybe could you explain sort of uh, what the difference in approach might look like in that example? Yeah, so we take two approaches to our investments. One is a what we would call control buyout approach, where our capital 
is creating liquidity for typically for us, a family-owned company. So about 80% of the companies in which we invest are previously family-owned companies. So there's a, a desire by an, an owner to generate liquidity on the business that they've built or that they own. So we do that. Uh, we take control of the company. Typically, those family owners will leave some equity in alongside us because we've invested to execute a value creation strategy. And, and quite often, we align with those prior owners toward those goals. So we then deploy a whole host of resources to grow and in some cases transform the businesses in which we invest. And, and we have a, a, an in-house team of experts across technology, human capital, operations, revenue growth, pricing strategies. We have that toolkit inside the firm and we deploy it to help facilitate better performance and growth in the portfolio. We also do a lot of M&A. So for every platform company in which the fund invests, we do on average at least two add-on acquisitions. So we're both driving organic and inorganic growth, no pun intended. And I think that's private equity 101. We're just applying that with a sector-focused strategy in food and ag, which we believe is really conducive to that approach. The, the other type of investing we do, we call growth equity investing. And institutional capital uses that term to define the, the kind of gray zone between venture capital and what I just described as control buyout, where you'll see companies that have advanced to a, a point where they've got products in the market, they're generating revenue, but they might not be profitable. They certainly haven't maximized the commercial opportunity. Maybe they haven't fully built out a professional team or all the capabilities that you would see in a more mature business, but they're beyond binomial technology risk. There is a significant, typically, execution risk that we wear in those investments. And those investments, our capital is, is used typically to drive growth. So the capital is actually going into the company to fund defined growth objectives. And that might be capital expenditures. It might be investment in sales and marketing. It might be people. Uh, you spoke to Aaron at Advanced Agrolytics. When we invested with Aaron, I think there were less than 20 employees at Advanced Agrolytics. There are close to 200 today. So the biggest single investment we've made in Advanced Agrolytics is in the team, is in the people. So that's the growth equity strategy. Differentiated from the venture capital approach to let's call it ag tech in that you know, we're looking for opportunities where these companies are beyond the kind of binary, does it work or does it not work risk. And I, and I think, you know, our perspective is that the best relative value opportunities across that axis, the sort of stage of company axis in food and agriculture exist in growth equity and buyout, not in venture capital. Now, I think that's changed as venture capital valuations recently have come roaring down. And we've seen now some capital raised on some previously high-flying venture capital-backed ag tech platforms. So we'll keep our eye on that. But absent the last 12 months, the prior five years or so, record amounts of capital flowing into ag tech venture at huge valuations, very little realized return from that. And that was not an area where we saw the best relative value opportunity. I find this stuff so fascinating, Kevin. Thank you for sharing all this. Uh, 
without tipping your hand more than you're comfortable with, obviously, where are you seeing opportunities today uh, as you're kind of exploring those theses? It's a little bit of a boring answer because it's more of the same. I mentioned the genesis of, of our focus on food and agriculture, the, the seed companies. You know, that component of the value chain, breeding elite plant or animal material for production remains an absolutely core focus. We've now made seven investments, more than a billion dollars of that four and a half billion dollars of equity capital just in that segment alone. Uh, we already have a, a new platform in mushrooms in our new fund, the largest breeder and licensor of, of mushroom spawn. So we continue to believe that those critical inputs are the seed or the spawn or, or the, the animal that's being produced is probably the single most important and, and attractive part of the value chain. And it's the segment in which we've deployed the most capital. It's, it's not necessarily easy to find the opportunities, but it's an area where anything where there is an opportunity, we tend to get a first look. We really like the upstream part of the value chain broadly right now. So it doesn't have to just be the seed. There are a number of other very compelling opportunities through either services platforms like Advanced Agrolytics or product platforms like ABT, or we just invested in a, a fulvic and humic acid platform called Humic Growth Solutions, which has a novel dry formulated humic acid product that not only drives yield, but dramatically enhances soil health, which is a topic of real importance. So our portfolio construction and the opportunity set that we think is most attractive is certainly tilted upstream relative to, to downstream. And we, we've also obviously overlaid some of the exogenous dynamics, inflation being a salient one as we've been deploying capital over the last few years in a hyperinflationary environment. And because of our upstream orientation, we've actually seen a lot of tailwind from that. We're only as good as our last result, but what we've done so far with that upstream tilt relative certainly to inflation has been a win. And, and then through the pandemic, our health and wellness orientation, as you can imagine, was also a, a really kind of tailwind theme to be investing in. And we're doing more of the same. So we're not uh, sitting on some, you know, new novel, great idea. We're we just executing very consistently the strategy that I articulated in the segments that I mentioned yeah, I mean, I think I think that's how I would describe it. There, there, there isn't some you know new whiz bang sort of silver bullet solution that that uh, we figured out that we're that we're investing in. Dang, we're always looking for new whiz bangs in this show. Uh, but <laughs> I am curious though, do you think about? Are you? I must. You must think about. Or how do you think about? risk exposure in portfolio construction or in, in fund construction, as far as like, okay, if I have too many upstream investments in this fund, are we really susceptible to drop in the farm economy versus downstream? Are we really susceptible to inflation? Um, is that part of the process? It absolutely is part of the process. So 
we've been investing in food and agriculture now for more than 20 years. And uh, I can tell you, we haven't gotten everything right. So we've learned from our mistakes. What we found is that where we have investments that are directly exposed to agronomic risk, where they're uh, there's a, a material component of the business or a sole component of the business that's effectively production agriculture. That's very difficult in a, in a private equity model. So we're we're very alive to that risk, and we have dramatically reduced it in our investments. The balance upstream and downstream. So even though I would say we've seen or we've been most excited about the upstream relative to downstream in the inflationary environment, we have still deployed downstream. What we've done is tried to make sure that the companies in which we're investing downstream have pricing power, that they are fundamentally differentiated, that they have a real value proposition to the, to the consumer or the B2B customer, and that when the rubber meets the road, they can pass through their rising costs. And thankfully, we've built a portfolio downstream that has has been able to do that. And some of our highest performing assets are, are actually our, our downstream investments. So we're going to continue to, to seek that balance across the portfolio. We're also focused on geography. So we're transacting in the US, uh, Europe, and, and to a lesser degree, Australia. But based on a you know, tight band of segments that are are in scope for us. So that confidence of of rule of law, you know, no sort of huge uncontrollable variable that can wipe out an otherwise good set of decisions and lead to a poor investment outcome. Um, the the risk assessment part of what we do, the risk identification assessment and mitigation part of what we do, which is a, a well embedded process, quantifiable process in our investment committee is one of the most important things we do. And it's one of the places we spend the most time when we're underwriting investments. But we, we, do, we do look at portfolio construction carefully and we, we identify risks at the portfolio level to try to ensure we're not overly exposed. Yeah. And along similar lines, how do you think about timeline to, to return a fund? I'm sure some strategies, they're going to take longer than others. And, and how do you decide you know, the time risk that you're willing to take on? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I've had some really interesting conversations with investors over time. So most of our investors are, are real asset strategies. We have impact investors. We have traditional private equity investors as well. And each kind of has a different lens through which they, they look at us. And we're investing through closed-end funds that have a 12-year life. So our job is to invest the capital that's been committed to us in a three to five year period of time and then create a lot of value for our investors and realize it. And so our kind of standard hold period is about five years. And, and if you look at this, the average, it's about five years, but it's variable. So we have investments like Seminus, which was an 18 month investment. Monsanto knocked on the door, was willing to pay uh, a price that made that a fantastic investment outcome in 18 months. We exited. We've had other investments we've held for longer than a decade because we're still working on uh, the value creation strategy. What we have is a process internally that every single portfolio company goes through to review it for exit or not. And we call that our exit review committee process. So we do have a formal process and effectively re-underwrite each investment annually. 
you know, we're investing in some, some companies where I, I would argue if we had the flexibility to do so, we should just own them indefinitely. They're such fundamentally good businesses doing such in, incredible things. We have an investment in a business called SNFL, which has just been merged with IFG, now called Bloom, which is the leading breeder and licensor of proprietary table grape varieties in the world. Uh, that is probably the single highest quality business with maybe the greatest opportunity in which we've invested. And that opportunity exists over decades. Uh, but we've monetized a part of our investment. We re remain a holder for reasons that you know um, make sense from a investment outcome perspective. But you know those kinds of of investments, you could argue we should own over the the, the long term. And I had one conversation that that I'll never forget. I won't mention the name of the investor, but a very well known individual investor who who in describing some of these investments asked, well, why would you ever sell any of these companies? Why would you sell these companies? And, you know, the answer, practically speaking, is because that's our job. We have a closed end fund. It's got a finite timeline. Our job is to invest capital and then return it with a strong return on that investment to to our investors. But but I, I think in this industry, it's interesting to at least ask the question, well, should there be a part of the strategy that's actually much longer term, either decades or, or even permanent capital oriented? And are you all utilizing leverage in these investments, I would assume? And, and if so, does the interest rate environment really uh, make it difficult in private equity? We're using relatively very little financial leverage in our investments, both funds five and six. So our, our two newest funds, those funds are levered at about 2.2 or 2.3 times EBITDA, which is about the same as the S&P 500. And in each fund, about half of the investments don't have any debt at all. So we, where it's appropriate, where the business model and the, and the strategy for value creation allows the use of financial leverage, obviously our capital, the capital of our investors is the most expensive capital. So we will use some debt but it's dramatically less than the private equity universe on average, right? Which is, you know, probably now down into the, you know, five or six times EBITDA range, but um, during peak valuation periods uh, prior was, was in the seven plus times EBITDA range. So we're using well less than half the financial leverage of a typical private equity firm, yet still generating the same equity IRRs. And we're doing that through business transformation, growth, M&A, and then quite frankly, most of our exits are to strategic buyers at premium multiples. Thank you for that. That makes perfect sense. And, and I wonder, as you're out there looking for opportunities that fit your model, how do you decide where to focus your efforts as a team? I know you've, you've got a team working on this, obviously, and maybe you could use this to talk about the hunting ground um, model that you all use. Yeah. So when we designed the shift from a generalist to sector focused fund, we had already leaned into what we thought one of the most critical success factors was, which was unique insights and real domain expertise, and particularly in an industry as complex as agriculture and food. But we have 
over time, not only added to the team, so we've brought in domain experts and more than half of our team are industry operators. So we've got about 20 investment professionals. We've got a few more than that operating professionals in the firm. But we also leaned into the research on the sector. And historically, we had done some really detailed and kind of over the horizon, a decade or so projects. And then at least once a year, we did what we called deep dives, where we would tear apart a segment that we thought was interesting. We would develop investment theses and then map those markets, identify targets and and you know, try to get in contact with companies that were potentially investable. But we were doing that episodically. And so a number of years ago, we thought about designing an always-on process where every week of every year, that research activity is working toward new thesis development, new market mapping, new target identification, and creating this constant flow of opportunities into the funnel. And that's our hunting ground process, as we call it. And so when we, we, we break down the two core investment themes, it's simply put productivity and health and wellness into seven hunting grounds. And those hunting grounds are effectively defined segments of the food and ag value chain where we have entire teams, investment professionals, operating professionals, third-party resources, working on a scheduled cadence of thesis development, market mapping, target identification. And we every week meet to discuss progress, to hear a presentation on a new investment thesis, and to discuss, debate it, and then prioritize it. So it's a, a process that we developed over the last five or six years or so that is really, we think, working well, we overlay a kind of traditional private equity biz dev function. So we interact with all the intermediaries that might be creating opportunities. We interact with any owners of targets that we think are interesting. So we kind of overlay what I'll call actionability on all this thesis work, right? Because our job is ultimately to deploy capital and create value. It's not to, you know, do research as an intellectual exercise. So we do overlay that actionability component, but the hunting grounds are critical to what we do. And it's allowed us to accelerate our, our pace of deployment. Very cool. Uh, one thing I wonder with you and your team is you obviously have developed this expertise for adding value to an already strong company because you wouldn't buy it if it wasn't all, you know, the fundamentals weren't all already there. But you have to kind of come in and, and to an extent, sell them on this strategy. Uh, what have you learned about about that? And as a communicator, it's something I'm super interested in. Yeah, it's, look, that's a great point. The, the, the funny thing about what we do is, at least I, I hope chat GPT can't just do it itself, but is that we, we actually do need to connect with real people and earn their trust. And in many cases, the investments we make are partnership investments. We, we, we do minority investments, we do 50-50 partnership investments, and we obviously do control investments. And we, we've now built a track record of both delivering results, but being good partners. And, and so we kind of have a referenceable network. Um, part of the initial connection is that, you know, we're just real people. I 
gave you my background, you know, grew up in a small town in the Midwest and both sides of my family uh, farming, my, my mom's side in Missouri, my dad's in Iowa and my grandfather and my dad and my uncle all worked their entire careers at one company and that was John Deere. So just from a personal perspective, the industry that I grew up around and in and, you know, given the amount of family ownership, private ownership, you know, instead of the maybe more, let's call it, you know, typical private equity persona, we can interact. Certainly, we like to think with all the capabilities that private equity offers, but interact based on just having a, a, a real depth of understanding of how hard agricultural production is, how hard farmers work, and understand that there's also going to be some volatility in many of these businesses that is okay as long as that volatility is around a directional up and to the right trajectory. And so I, I think that's, that's part of it. I, I think we uh, are also just passionate about what we do, the opportunity. And I, I think also believe that it really matters beyond the financial return. Um, you know, we don't market PSP as an impact fund, but we do measure impact and it's real and it's more than just financial return. And, you know, in a world where people have choice and competing for the best talent is difficult, that type of a mission as a firm really matters. And so that also impacts how we show up to these external constituents, right? So it, it's, a, it's a little bit different question, a little bit difficult question to, to address without sounding, you know, trite. But, you know, I, I do think the, the backgrounds, the attitudes, the humility, the trust gives us an edge and, and really matters. All right. Well, that is a good place to end today's episode. Thank you so very much to Kevin Schwartz for taking the time to be on the show here today. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about what they're doing over at Payne Schwartz, you can go visit their website. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes so you can make sure you go check that out. I'm curious what you think about this. I haven't really checked in with you guys in a while. So if you have any feedback for me on any of the episodes, this one or others, uh, feel free to drop me a line, Tim at aggrad.com, or you can always find me on Twitter or in the DMs on LinkedIn as well. Really do appreciate the chance to put these episodes together for you every single week. I definitely learn a lot, but I want to make sure that it's uh, remaining valuable to you week in and week out. So let me know. Thanks so much to our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter, which is FarmWave. Go learn more about them at farmwave.io. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.